0: Thanks for joining us, and I'm going to just start the event with a quick kind of introduction to the project, who we are and the event and the kind of program that it's part of. Um, and we're going to be here for the next uh, hour and a half, um, and uh, there's going to be time for everyone to ask questions to the speakers and stuff too, so um, but I'll just run through that, give me one second. So my name is Amy and I'm the programme manager at Newington Green Meeting House. If you don't know the building, this is what it looks like. And we're on the borders of Hackney and Islington. And it's an old uh, church building. It's been here for over 300 years and um, with a radical history. Um, so not only has it been uh, a place where Mary Wollstonecraft, um, who's kind of known as being Britain's first feminist, um, came to because she was... Uh, encouraged by the kind of radical community there, but it's also a place where people who've wanted to kind of change the world and do things differently, change, challenge the the government, the legal system at the time um, to, they have kind of come as a place, um, whether that was kind of politically or religiously. Um, And so on that kind of theme of changing the world, making the world a fairer place, we do all sorts of different kind of programmes and and events. Um, And this series is all about kind of working classness. So the Common People programme through exhibitions, through photography, through online events, through in-person events, kind of looking at what it means to be working class today in our area, does that even exist? Should we use another word? Um, And so the speakers today are going to be talking about their lived experience of kind of working classness and also just their thoughts, perhaps a little bit of research too that they're going to share about kind of um, the different kind of varieties of working classness. Um, So just a couple of um, admin logistics things here. I'm sure you all are zoomed out anyway um, and you know how to use this. But we are going to record this and we haven't decided what we're going to do with the recording, but it's going to be one of two things. It will either be stripped and just audio and it will be released on Spotify or um, we will release it and put the, the whole video on our YouTube channel. If you don't want to be part of the recording, then if you hover over your name, left click you can make it anonymous just change the name and you can turn your video off on our office fine for this event it's up to you and that way um, you won't be recorded on the recording um, we're going to ask you to mute yourself until um, you would like to speak and if you're an audience member then that's going to be um, at the end the last 20 minutes or so is going to be um, questions you can ask the speakers yourself or you can just type it in the chat There is live transcription um, and to turn that on you hover near the bottom menu and press the CC live transcription um, button and it's not always totally accurate, but it's not bad. Um, And just to say that we don't tolerate any exclusionary language new unity is is radically inclusive or tries to be as much as possible, Um, and so we just want to make this a safe space for everyone. Um, So. Uh, I haven't introduced you Mercedes, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: (laughs) Hi. So I'm basically um, working with Amy, we kind of work together on this project, Um, yeah, assisting guess in some ways. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Amy will leave at about seven around that time, um, just to set up another event that we're doing in like an hour. Um, So I'll be hosting
0: from then on. So yeah, hi. (laughs) Amazing. Um, Well, we, I think we should start so we um actually had a speaker unfortunately had to drop out through illness um so we are going to start with lil and then we were going to hear from chelsea but we're going to go straight to simon if that's okay um and then joe and then veronica who is yet to join the call but she's working so she can't join till a little bit later on so is that all right if we go through to you lil
2: yeah sure can everyone hear me yeah Cool. All right. Um, my my name is Lil Warren, and I am from the east end of London. That is quite a, a weighted statement if you're a Londoner. So it's not East London; it's the east end of London, which is uh, Bethnal Green and Stepney. And I was brought up there, and, but my mum did not want me to go to school there um because she thought that it was too rough uh they were really skim my dad was an artist my mum worked in offices and did stuff like that I don't know how she did it to this day but she sent us to a school where we didn't live now that was problematic because it meant that me and my sister were a little bit othered because we had a, a different uniform but It also meant that we we learnt, we got exposed to um, subjects like we did French at primary school and stuff like that. Um, So we had a really good start. Thank you, Mummy. We obviously balls that up almost immediately when we went to secondary school. um, And I went to secondary school on the Isle of Dogs. I don't know if anyone knows London because people are from all over. Um, But the Isle of Dogs is the bit where the river, the Thames goes like that. And Isle of Dogs is in there. So again, I was, an although I was in my community and people spoke like me, um, I was always an outsider there because I wasn't from the island. And uh, I remember I later went into theatre when I was about 17. And the first person I had interaction with was from the east end as well and he said that was the perfect education for someone who wanted to be a writer because i was always on the outside and i was on the outside as well because because my dad was an artist um and he sold his work in the pubs in the east end but also in you know galleries and stuff like that that was a more than um unusual not that unusual because we all live precariously uh, being from a working class background but it was even more precarious because if he didn't sell nothing um we didn't have any food and if he did sell something that there was this kind of um hot and cold situation so if he did sell something it kind of got a bit splurged you know that sort of kind of situation so very early on i knew how to run and i it's porn. I wonder if it shows porn. No, I knew it'd say that. pawn. P-A-W-N. We got very good at working the porn shop system. So my lived experience to say my sister who works in pubs, um, my other sister, Sarah, is a hairdresser, like one of our speakers. And she's been doing that since she was 14 and she's still doing that in her 50s. And a very nice living, thank you very much. And uh, you know, really worked hard and uh, has got you know a nice life for her and her children. Um, And my but my brother was a professional athlete, and he went on to be the Commonwealth Judo champion. And Ine lives in Portugal and runs a dojo. So because we had this kind of strange stranger home life. And because my dad was an artist, his point of view was much more open. He was much more accepting of people. He was very curious about life outside the East End, even though it was very uh, much of his background vis-a-vis his wit, his sense of style, and I would say his quickness and his intelligence. Um, we, we had a slightly different viewpoint when we went out into the world of work. So we were already um, in front, I think, um, of being kind of socialized outside our class. But another thing, I I have said this before, and it's come up in previous conversations, because we lived in amongst the rag trade, um, there are other examples in the north of England and in Glasgow, where you've got a rag trade, you're working class people, Um, take a lot of pride in their appearance and this is sometimes in the past been patronised by uh, people of different class because they think it's being flash but it's not, it's just an expression because we haven't got paint and stuff at home, it's just an expression of uh, I suppose our artistic aesthetic Um, yeah I suppose that's what it is, having a nice suit, having nice shoes all knocked off of course from down the Roman or down the Waste or down Petticoat Lane or whatever. Um, so although I did go into the arts, as for everyone who is an artist in this country, I was always, always skint. And so in parallel with working in the arts, I obviously worked in the usual um, sort of part-time gig-based kind of work which was pubs the markets cleaning nannying and I know we've got someone who represents the nannies union on later so I was had my foot in both camps if you know what I mean um I didn't really realize that there was a problem um, with my class until I kind of went into theatre Um, And there were very, very few people that got me initially. Um, This is a word you probably hear, uh, and particularly a gobby women. But, yeah, I was aggressive. I was cheeky. I had a chip on my shoulder and all of that. And I think I did, Um, because if I went to be in a show or I was trying to produce a show... I had to do that on top of a day job. And it was exhausting. And so people wouldn't understand why you weren't quite on it or you're a little bit short because you're knackered and stuff like that. In saying that, though, in saying that, um, because I was from the East End, it's always that part of London, because it's near the docks, has always had a very... Uh, rich uh, community so uh, I think apart I mean there may be some Liverpudlians on here that will disagree with me but I think uh, Cockney's are first-rate working-class wits and I think it stood me in good stead because if I couldn't I couldn't use language that like we've said on here, exclusive language. I couldn't use language that I heard at home, that I heard at work, that I heard in factories, warehouses and stuff like that in a theatre environment. Yeah. But I still could use yeah. my wit and I continue. I didn't understand also when I went out of my class and worked in a different arena that my idiom was lit, absolutely littered with uh, Yiddish Irish, these, but with a Cockney accent. French, like there's a saying in the East End. Joe might know this. It's called Saint Ferian, and it's spelled S-A-N-F-A-I-R-Y-A-N-N. Saint Ferian, meaning it don't matter, it don't matter. But that comes from the French Saint Ferian, but um, yeah, in translation, it became Saint Ferian. And as a side note. you'll find that people from this is absolutely nothing to do with this talk, but for as a side note, people from the East then say bagel, not bagel. So that's how you can kind of tell. Um, and also I found if I did meet people in fear, um, we would have what we call the Cockney sniff sniff off. So you would sort of check out where they went to the school, who their mum and dad was, who what they did for a living and stuff like that. But when I did come into contact with other people uh, from a working class background, um, they would get quite shirty if I said, oh, you're working class like me. They would they go, no, I'm not. I'm an artist. There is no class in art. And that's a statement I kind of agree with um, for the individual. Um, but as a group, I don't know if that's true. And that's one of the challenges. Oh, here's Dan. That's one of the challenges, I think, of trying to find your place within whatever arts arena you want to be in as a working class artist. Um, I think it's it's much less of a problem in the film game, I find, that's way more democratic. And I suppose because that is possibly very practical um, and it's to do with machinery like cameras, lights, and sound as well. So those things have got to be right. But on a set, you'll find that those people are usually uh, sons and daughters of cab drivers. And the director is normally uh, the son or daughter of a another director, writer, or whatever. Um, But things are changing. There's loads of uh, different film festivals that encourage access and try and remove the barriers to people from different backgrounds to make films and produce art and stuff like that so because i've been quite a lot involved with um the season that amy and mercedes have organized i have found myself um repeating myself so it these are these issues of me being um I don't know. Resentful, perhaps. Still, sort of. There's a kind of underlying resentment that um, I get. I'm at this age. I'm only just getting it right, and it's taken me like 30, thirty-five years to kind of understand the game. Before I thought it was a war, and it is a way. In a way, it can be a class war uh, in the arts world, but I now understand it's a game, and I now. Um, I'm engaging with that game, and I'm playing that game. Um, But because I've got to this age, um, I can't change too much. Um, You you really can't teach an old dog too many new tricks. So, as I say, problem sometimes, sometimes not a problem. We were talking earlier, and Simon said, you know, it's a very fuzzy term now, working class. But I was taught always... Um, by my mother and by my grandmother and by my great-grandmothers to be proud, to be proud of being working class um, because we are the backbone. We are the ones that make this, the social um, infrastructure, the buildings, the roads. We, we all make that that our class make that so other people can get from A to B. and um, We should be proud of that. And so that's, I think that's where this new interest in targeting uh, working-class voices, which there was a lot of that going on in the 70s and, and 80s, and then it kind of drifted off as... How we target who we want to engage in our culture and and community events changes as the fashion or the interests of the grant givers changes. Um I'm I'm really pleased that it's had a resurgence, but it is a different fight now. And there was a there was an event earlier today, and there were some working class poets in the room and they read their poetry, and then we went over to Newton Green and had a convo and a fag and a cup of tea. Excuse me while I just grab a little cup of tea actually. Uh, And we were saying what we want to see happen is that identity, people's different identities and how they fit or how they feel they fit is acknowledged, but that we encourage that within those differences, we stand shoulder to shoulder because it is in the interests of them that be, that we do um, fracture and become smaller and smaller yeah. groups. And I think we've maybe as a class because it's changed because people's expectations of life are different before you had to kind of know your place and your job was valuable and you were in that job from 14 till the day you day you you know retired and then you were lucky if you had five years retirement and then you died. So now our expectations of what our life looks like and the lives of our children's and the expectations of um, their what they put in their mouths and what they put on their back is, is very different. But we shouldn't take, my personal view, is um, we shouldn't take our eye off the ball and division is not the same as difference. So, yeah. That's how. That's how I feel about how the differences of feeling working class um, have changed from when I was growing up in the seventies. There's there's a there's a really sad um, statistic uh, actually that um, the the amount of people uh, who have a uh, lived experience in the justice system, for instance, a lot of them are dyslexic. Now, that seems a really simple statement. A lot of them are dyslexic. But if we want to have any change, I think we have to be a little bit more like Finland. And I think the biggest problem in this country is uh, public schools. And once we get rid of those and we have access to good education for everyone. I think uh, a lot of the work can be done before people leave school, let alone, be, you know, I have to wait till they get to university to get a wider world view. Um, as I say, I was a flash little person and um, we call this the working class uh, facelift. See, because my team is joking at all the time. so. Um, I've managed to keep my jawline because I was I always had the ump. Um but my I think my ethos is I do where I can help others because uh, people help me. Um I help others from my class and everyone has got a good story and everyone is of value. And this sounds I don't know if that sounds like a bit of a cliche, um, but it's true. I'd like to finish, um, really, by saying that if we um, don't value our planet, um, there was a thing I I, I heard earlier, someone talking about, uh, you know, affordability of clothes and stuff like that. Um, If we don't value our planet, all this is null and void anyway um but it's all our responsibility it's all our responsibility to um reach out to people who don't think it is their problem or say i can't afford organic eggs or i can't afford um recycle cotton and stuff like that no you you don't have to go and buy secondhand stuff um and or if we could just if we could just um get back to supporting people like the workers at amazon um and boycott them for just one day i think we need to use our voices a wee bit more we've kind of lost our place a little bit i think and been sidetracked by um our new toys god do i sound like a grumpy old woman amy <laughs> i really really do but um it's very difficult for me, all of this, because um, my dad's never really got a fair crack of the whip. Um, but he always said, I wouldn't want to join that club anyway. So I'll leave. I'm will i going to leave you with that. I'm really happy to take questions later. Uh, I, don't, I haven't been very cohesive um, because I talk about this subject quite a lot. So the, this, this little chat has been a little bit e- emotional and garbled. So my apologies. Yeah, but ask me any questions you want to later about my um, work and how you how you recognise your fellow travellers and your allies um, as a working class uh, artist or a working class person. It's lit. sometimes it's just in the queue at Morrison's. You just make the eye contact, and you know you've got you know someone's got your back if uh, something kicks off. I know that sounds a bit basic and a bit EastEnders um, craze, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, if I run out of time, with that am I up, Amy? Yeah. Um. Thank you. Thank you, Lil. Um. Can we go to Simon now? Yeah, that was
1: amazing. <laughs> that and actually, was amazing.
0: We were just saying that you sounded really, really clear, <laughs> really
2: cohesive. We thought. Yeah. yeah,
0: we were commenting on that
2: all right <laughs> thank you darling yeah,
3: <laughs> um,
2: yeah thanks so much I,
3: thank you. Um, I do have a question though what do you mean by tic-tacking the hewitt morrison's that didn't make any sense to me
2: well do you know the do you know what the, the term tic-tac means oh okay so when in betting you you, you don't see it so much but when you have got racehousing the bookmakers it's called tic-tac so they signal like that so if you're if you want to tick tack somebody or you know you just smell them you know that they're your friend like you just know they're going to back you it might only just be or or
3: right
2: yeah it's a, it's a signal to someone who uh who understands your the trouble you're in and they're just letting you know silently that they've got your back
3: Reading the emotional cues, that's brilliant. Got it now, thank you very much.
2: Yeah.
1: Thank you. Um, okay, so Simon, if you come on next.
4: Hello, um, thank you, that was great. I, I love that. It was case and it, it was rich and it was thought out and I hope mine doesn't sound too scatty now because I'm just gonna kind of, I've made a few notes, but that was great, thank you. Um, am, I, am I coming through? Um, give me a thumbs up if I'm good. For uh okay, great, fantastic. Right, thanks. So oh, I said yes, I said yes to this. And then i thought, God, actually, what will I say? Because it's so complex and it's so nuanced. And actually, I can't, I can't, I don't even know what I think in a very sort of postmodern way because, well, I'll I'll, I'll um, I made a few notes. Uh I'd just like to follow what was said before about um Let's talk about class, but let's also not let it be used as a dividing tool. I do feel like this year, some people in the culture wars kind of made out that if you're white working class, or you couldn't um, be in favor of Black Lives Matters. And if you listen to people like Carla speak very um, well on these subjects, it's about power, it's about structures of, of power, it's about economics, it's about maintaining vested interests, it's about keeping certain people in certain positions of power and other people outside of that. So um, when when Black Lives Matter was happening, um i could i felt like i could totally get where they were coming from because you know if you the, the difference between how the police treat you in one part of town and another is very different and it's it's maybe um maybe sorry i do tend to speak a little bit fast. i'm just reading the um uh the the, the the chat there um it's maybe not as pronu- london's a little bit different from what where i grew up where i grew up there were parts of town that had a reputation like a whole area and of course you'd be treated differently if you're on the street in that area to a more uh, respectable part of town so class i think you you can't separate it from 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 race and gender because for me it's about power and it's a difficult thing to put your finger on and yet at the same time i feel like um it very definitely clearly exists and For example, my my pet beef is when I'm listening to um, Radio 4 and there's nothing on there that I don't understand. But why does nobody on there sound like me? And still, because, you know, I grew up in the 1970s, it's still, for me, a massive thrill and novelty that people on Radio 6 uh, when I hear an accent of someone from Sunderland, like Lauren Laverne, like me, and then they switch to the guys in Manchester. And I absolutely love that, because I can remember when, you know, not a lot of people had, uh, you hear, wouldn't hear regional accents so much on TV. And also, as well, I, I guess when I came to London, I'd probably internalised some of that sense of inferiority, um, and I modified the way I speak, Uh, And partly also because I was working with tourists and I I had to, but um, you know, there were, there were codes and and this is where it gets really complex because some of those codes I feel are imposed and some of those codes are um, self-imposed. So for example, I've, I've, I'm sure I've had more anxiety about being perceived as, as not as intelligent because of my accent than I've actually come across. And yet there are people out there who will will judge you for that. And, and I feel so ambivalent about class because on the one hand, there are things that I love about where I grew up. And then there are things that I, um, I'm glad to get away from. You know? Um, I was brought up in somewhere that is now very Brexit voting. I mean, when they say very, I mean, none of it's massive. It's never like 90% or 10%, but relative to the rest of the country, voted quite strongly for Brexit. And now I love living in a a hyper-diverse part of Hackney with people. I'm, I'm multilingual myself, and I live with people from all over, and I love being surrounded by people of all types and hues because I'm fascinated by them. And yet, again, the ambivalence, I understand what it is to, to, when I grew up in the Northeast, um, we looked at the government in London, the Tory government, again, um, and and it was like we were being ruled by aliens, you know, we had the miners' strike, we were the the enemy within. For me, it was even more of a split, or more complex, because my father was a policeman, um, my grandfather was a miner, Um, my mother was a nurse, my uncle worked in the shipyards. Um, so the complexities of, of, and, and, and again, and I think this is where sometimes things get a little bit binary. I know working class people that are ruthless, um, capitalists, folk Tory and say, yes, it's a jungle out there. And, um, you know, that's just how it is. I know people that have got lots of money that are incredibly generous and liberal and feel like, you know, we should share things um, around. So it's, um, it's incredibly complex and, and nuanced and yet there is definitely something there. Um, and I think possibly, I mean, I imagine the people that will come to this discussion tonight uh will be within a certain range. We forget there are people above here, right? There are there's, there's I mean, if you if you they used to define social class by the registrar general scale, which was your job, and you had lower middle class, middle middle class, upper middle class, and then upper class. But even within that, I remember the striations, people were really judgmental, you'd have these micro levels of class within the oh, look, look at them over there, look at the way they've done their such and such. And, and we did that classic thing of, you know, uh, the houses got steadily bigger as my parents did better and better um, from a council house on a police council house on an estate, then to, you know, then it's a, a bungalow, then it's a semi-detached and so on. And um, I've been on a massive journey myself and it's so hard, even within my own lifetime, things have changed so much you, and, and with technology you know, um, it's possible for fairly ordinary people to become very wealthy. So it's much more complex, and yet it still is very, very, very clear and very obvious. And they, and we, people like us probably don't spend a lot of time going into the places where, I mean, I haven't said that, I, I did actually have some contact with an advertising company where most of the people, but a lot of the people, they knew someone. And I remember thinking like, wow, some of these people are not actually that smart. And I've kind of, I made this assumption that because of the way they speak, they're actually smarter than me. And then I remember like, you know, you get to know them, and you're like, actually, you're not that smart, are you? But you knew someone who knew someone. Um, and they've got, I guess what they've got is um, uh, social cultural capital and I've got a friend who first articulated this, and he, he lived with some people that were very, as he, he defined it, middle class. And I, I guess I would be, I don't know, am I middle class now? You know, I I have tour guided all over Europe, I've been a, 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 a further, been to 45 countries, speak several languages, you know, spend a lot of time scratching my chin, reading about cultural cultural theory and you know, waffling on about postmodernism, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And yet I retain. When I go home, um, well, home, yeah, well, I mean, what is home? Home's is London, but home's also the northeast, you know. I have these different selves and I slot from one self into a slightly other self. And it's almost like perhaps we're a kind of um in-betweener, you know, where you you open your mouth in London or certain parts of London, or, or in a very specific environment, sorry, in London, and someone might say, um, just occasionally like, oh, right, you're very um you know, you can just feel you're very earthy uh, and then you go home and then, oh, you're a bit posh. So you, you end up inhabiting this sort of strange in-between space and class, I find it harder and harder to identify with a, a particular class. Um, and also I, I feel that labels, again, ambivalence, um, they're helpful, but they can also be, restrictive because once you wear, and, and I can see there's, there's a great sort of pull. I mean, we live in the times of Brexit, you know, we have camps and people love you to be in their camp. And which one are you, you know, are you, are you this and that? Uh, you know, they, they they ask you, what's your sexuality? What's your sort of, what are you trying to work out your value system? And then you know that, and sometimes I play those codes, you know, so for example, I'm speaking like this, uh, if I was back in Sunderland, I might be a bit more like that, you know what I mean? Like I've had a few beers as well, I'm catching up with my mum, talking a bit like that. And that's in the same way that I'll sort of be a little bit different when I'm speaking French. And um, over in France, they're kind of different personas, almost in a way. It's interesting. The last talk mentioned that it's like a game. And sometimes I do feel it's a little bit like about what sort of footballs, what shirt you're going to put on, what strip you're going to put on, and which team are you. Um, going to play for. So, so now today I, I, I've got, i got, you know, I mean, I guess I'd be defined by some people as, as liberal elite now. And yet I can remember we had catalogs, you know, uh, my pair I remember the first colour TV using the catalogs to pay for clothes. Um, and sorry I, I went off on a massive tangent there, didn't I? Sorry. I meant to come back to my, friend, uh, my friend's comment that he was living with some people that were very, what he called middle class. And, um, he he observed that, that that some of the things I've been talking about, we had to spend years learning that, and yet these people they they just knew, for example, how to play a piano, the the capital of Outer Mongolia, um, you know, which which the which was the best food, the health, just all these things that they just took for granted, and we'd had to spend years learning that, and and finally we had that, and he he this particular friend feels quite sad about that, that he wasn't uh, given that same cultural capital. And yet, of course, this is like a form of currency and you, to play the game, you need to be able to spend this form of currency. So, you know, for example, someone asks about the Lions tour when you're working in an advertising agency and you go, well, who are the Lions? And they're like, oh, right. Whereas if you know that it's the international rugby team. Um, so it's, just that cultural capital that, um, yeah. So it's, um I'm just looking at my notes here. It's, um, it's complicated. And I, I feel like I always knew there was more just because of the way I am. I always knew there was more over the hill, but I didn't know what it was and I've kind of had two lives and, and one life was quite conventional. And then I um, had a major life change and then went traveling and then basically discovered the rest of the world. And if you're born into a certain environment then that's just naturally presented to you um you know you oh yeah well everyone spends a year in australia don't they everyone goes on safari in 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 kenya at some point don't they you know that sort of thing and this world of possibilities opened up and i feel very sad in this time of brexit that the um a young a version of me now in the same position might not be exposed to those ideas of like, well, maybe you could go and live abroad and maybe you could do, and there's a whole world out there. And I feel like there's almost this turning in. And in some ways, class, I feel like some, some. I mean, this is New Degree Meeting House, right? Mary Wollstonecraft was a, a great exponent of enlightenment ideals, right? And yet I feel we're almost, there's a backlash at the moment, culturally against the enlightenment, and people want simple ideas. And so there's a temptation, I think, to, to, to get back into our trenches and, and where these identities really strongly, I'm remain, I'm leave. I'm, I'm you know middle class, I'm working class. And I think we have to be, whilst acknowledging that there are some very uh, definite power structures in place that, as was said before, they, they can be used to isolate and divide. and as was said before, dividing people is a great way. To control them. So um, I guess to finish off, I'll I'll say that um, yeah, I'm very ambivalent about it. And and yes, let's keep talking about it. And and the, the the genie's out of the box now, right? Intersectionality. We realize that life is is incredibly complex, and there are many ways to be in the world. So yeah, let's let's keep talking about class, but let's use it in an expansive way and maybe a way that liberates us and opens doors and opens opportunities and and uh, rather than becoming a, a tool for retrenchment so um i hope that was um useful so that's me
0: Thanks so much, Simon. Um, eloquent as ever. And uh, if you're not familiar with Simon's work, Simon goes under Hackney Tours, and that uh, is not just tours; it's all sorts of different research and creative projects and things like that. That's what we were just mm. chatting about. That you're a bit of a bit of a do a bit of everything. <laughs> um, and uh, thank you for that. I think that that, that kind of mixedy uppy kind of feeling of not being that in between yeah. it, that you said is something that I think resonates with us yeah, and it's something yeah. that we've spoken about before you know not not fitting in there and then not quite fitting in there and we were also saying that a lot of the backlash we faced we experienced yeah. wasn't so much from from those new communities that weren't working class actually it was from those working class communities of you know feeling like Oh, you've put on airs and graces all of a sudden and oh you've moved to london and who does she think she is you know and all that kind of stuff so that was really that was really interesting thank you so much thank you um i think that we are going to joe next let me just check yeah joe are you ready is that okay with you
5: i'm ready can you hear me i can one second go ahead Hi, well, I'm Jo Sutherland. And first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. It's um, really a pleasure. Uh, Also, it's so fascinating to listen to the speakers previously. I'm not just saying that it it really genuinely is. And the trouble, of course, is that when you're the third one on the list, you hear all of these amazing ideas. And um, it's like a catalyst and you think, oh, my God, and I should have said this and I should have said that. So what I'm going to try and do is I'm trying to go. I'm going to just try and be quite honest and tell you a little bit about my bizarre life, and um, hopefully not too bizarre, and um, and let you kind of maybe work things out yourself or draw whatever conclusions um, you would like to. So, with your permission, that's what I'd like to do. So, I'm Jo Sutherland and I was born to a mother and father who came from um, council estate. My grandfather and grandmother were in uh, a council flat in Camden. My grandfather originally was from East London. I was born in Stamford Hill, but my parents were at the time when there was really an opportunity um, through education to sort of change your horizons and they took it with both hands. And um, I think that was a golden opportunity that probably doesn't even exist for people of a similar age today. Now, I'm going to begin my story in a way, I think, at nursery school. So when I was very little, a teacher told us at nursery school, she said, listen, I would like you to draw a picture of what your future will be like, where you'll live, um, what things will look like. And I drew this amazing picture of this beautiful house. Well, it was a bit cliche. It was sort of, you know, there was a white picket fence and stuff. And the teacher came along and she said, what a beautiful picture. That's lovely. And she pointed to one of the figures, um, this this dark haired man. And she said, and is this you? And I was very confused. And I said, of course not. That's me. So I pointed at this lady I'd drawn and she said, well, who is this then? And I said, well. That's my husband, silly. And this would have been in the 70s. But at that moment, in the 70s, when I said that, I knew I'd said something really, really, really wrong. And the teacher, you know, my picture was taken off me. I didn't see it. And um, worried letters were sent home to my parents. So I started off feeling a little bit confused, I suppose, thinking I was one thing, but then, you know, feeling that, perhaps I didn't quite fit and I went to my school and that was Hendon Comprehensive and when I was there um, things didn't particularly get any better for me Um, I was still just as confused but I was bloody defiant and so I did start wearing makeup and I started looking um, probably quite quite strange to a lot of people and I had this strong feeling that nobody really could see me for who I was. Um, I wasn't really bullied because I was so vicious that if you ever tried to bully me I would always always fight back but right at the end of Hendon School before we were leaving and before we were going to go on to our walks of life and for me my walk of life was going to be trying to be a hairdresser uh, very well trained at Vidal Sassoon I was very lucky to get in there. Um, I We went to the end of school disco and The heartthrob of Hendon School at that time was also my chief tormentor. And he was about to join the the Navy. The the kids who were the the sort of posher kids, the better educated kids were going off to university, sixth form in university. And then I was going to go down to be a, a hairdresser. And at the end of this disco, he came up to me and he said, I'm joining the Navy. We'll never see each other again. And I was quite pleased. I said, good and he said look I know what the problem is here you're you're not really a boy are you and I was shocked because for the first time ever it was like somebody could actually see me for what I was well it was it was an amazing thing and um from that point on I started my hairdressing training I underwent gender reassignment um I suppose at that time I was living what people would call a working class a very working class existence by the way the reason I was going to do an apprenticeship was because my grandfather was a fine instrument maker at Boozy and Hawks and he believed that every boy and girl needed to have a sort of trade or needed an apprenticeship that was really important because he explained to me that if you had that, if you had a skill, that could actually elevate you. And I realise now he's talking about in his class, I think. So he actually paid, he, he put, bless him, he put so much money into me getting my trade and getting my apprenticeship and training with Vedas soon um, because he thought it was the, most, the best thing he could do for me. And in a way, he was right. After six years of hairdressing, I did very well. I did quite a bit of photographic work, but I was really beginning to wonder about myself. I'd undergone gender reassignment surgery, which was very tricky in those days. And I think it was very easy if you had enough money to go privately. But unfortunately, I didn't. And um, I had some surgery, um, which, which actually at the time was botched. It's sort of been sorted out now. And I was trying to find myself. I was desperately trying to find myself. And I wanted to test myself as well. And this is going to sound utterly bizarre, but I I started to think about the sort of difficult situations I could put myself in and to see what I was really made of. And one of the things I did is I applied to join the prison service. Now, this would have been uh, sort of at the end of the 1980s. I joined in the 1990s. And for somebody like me, uh, a trans trans woman, um, this was, I I was told I was the first ever person to have made such an application. And um, after a number of tests and I had to have quite a few interviews, I was accepted. And I started working at Pentonville Prison uh, down on Caledonian Road. And I started working um, with adults and I stayed with the prison service for some time. Now, working for the prison service might sound absolutely dreadful. I should state, actually, I was working in the male prison service as a female officer. And um, people always say, wasn't that terribly dangerous? And it's true, it might have been, and nobody was really quite sure. But actually, I, I, I managed it without any difficulty. Years later, when I was preparing to talk to you, I started to think, well, what really made me join the prison service? I mean, you know, I could have done so many things. And I thought, was it just the power? Have I got some sort of demonic streak through me where I like terrorizing people? Um, And I, I may have, but I don't think I have. But what I think I realized was that when you go into a prison, a prison is very much like a microcosm of society. So it's like a parallel class. So, oddly enough, there were a lot of similarities, I feel, between me and the prisoners. For example, we had both been really shunned, I think, by society. We had certainly been shunned by education. I mean, I was told I was too thick to do anything. Um, they couldn't wait to get me out of school. And a lot of, uh, a lot of prisoners had this. Um, A lot of them had sort of educational special needs, um, as Lil alluded to, and she's completely right. An an incredibly high, high number. Um, I I had, um, you know, a mild form of dyslexia myself. But all of these things seem to be similar. Now, the funny thing is that although society shuns prisoners, I have this feeling that when you're in prison, you actually have, an, whether you be an officer or an inmate, I think you actually, oddly enough, have an opportunity to shine. And it may be in a slightly perverse way, but because everyone has been pushed away from society or come from a really difficult background, you all you need to do is to show that you're an all right bloke or woman, um, that you're strong enough, you're not a push pushover, um, And there are ways that you can build status that, ironically, you might not be able to build outside of prison. And that was really, really fascinating to me. And also what was fascinating to me were the types of prisoners you met met in different prisons. So, for example, when I joined uh, Pentonville, which was, I think, 1990, there were still lots of gangs of prisoners who were going in and out and you saw how a lot of these you know a lot of these people knew each other and then just by the fact that they interacted with me they kind of got to know me as well. I stayed with Link, I stayed with uh, Pentonville Prison and um, I did sort of further training and then uh, and I was involved in quite a few of the riots that happened. Um, I was very, very young, but there was a lot of difficulties with riots in prisons at the time. Strange Ways being my first introduction to the prison service, which was probably one of the worst prison riots ever. And um, I then moved to Lincoln and then I moved to the northeast uh, to a place called Home House, um, which is in Middlesbrough. And um, whilst I was there, um, I saw a completely different side of life. I saw the communities and I I suppose working class, maybe not even working class, maybe they didn't have a class, but people who came from those communities. And it was really, really shocking. Um, It was really an education for me. And and to actually see the sort of conditions that some people lived in. I thought I had it bad living on the Cali Road, but I used to go to some sort of pit villages and things that had no employment. And it was really quite dire. There's one thing I would like to say, though. I'm sorry if I'm really rabbiting on about this, but um, one thing I think is really interesting um, that perhaps talks to the kind of... um, I don't know, not friendship is the wrong word, but but the sort of link perhaps about people when they're thrown into a position together, when they're outside, was well, something that happened to me in Lincoln. I was on detached duty and my house was broken into and the police telephoned me and they said, you need to get back to Lincoln. Your house has been broken into and we've caught them. And I was amazed they caught these people who have broken into my house. And it transpired that one of the prisoners had heard my house was going to get broken into. And I was quite worried. I have to say they even knew where I lived. But still, it was a small town and, um, and, and had informed on, on this person who was going to break into my house. And I thought that was remarkable. And that's when I was saying that if you show that you're fair, you show you're all right, you show you won't be messed around. It's funny. But I think, you know, you get this kind of camaraderie. I mean you know I didn't cross the line I didn't do anything wrong but but it existed and my feeling is that when you are a a, a group that doesn't have all the privileges that that thing sort of thing kind of happens um and that's what happened to me so um I had these amazing experiences I was very privileged I was able to create a um rehabilitation program in the northeast for young offenders and um Uh, which was marvellous and uh, I got a little award for that and then I went on and I wanted to see if I had a brain I I thought I might have one I wasn't sure I think it comes back to what one of the other speakers was saying I think you sort of just assume and you are told that that maybe you know you aren't necessarily that bright uh, if you're if you're slightly different and um, I I went on and um, eventually I took a law degree and then I read for the bar um, and um, I became a member of the inner temple, and I think this was really interesting for me because it was when I was uh, trained as a barrister that I think I really, really became aware of the class system and the barriers of a class system. And it, and I think Simon said, and I think it's, he's right. It is quite a nebulous term. You don't know quite where it begins and where it ends. Um, but but there's definitely um, there was definitely. A set of connectors which helped you if you came from a certain group of people. So just as the tic-tacking that Lil talks about in Morrison's, um, I, it's really funny, but when when you when you're in a chambers meeting or when you're at the inner temple dining or whatever you're doing, there is also tic-tacking going on there. And it's amazing how very specifically and quickly people seem to be able to put you into a box and um, determine who's one of their own and um, that was something that I, I very 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 much noticed um, and um, I, I went through my training I got very good grades and and all the other things that was required of me but I was not able to get um a pupillage um, and I, I there is huge competition for pupillages may I just say preempt anything else I'm about to say there's there's huge pu- there's huge um Competition for them. But I I did notice that when I was doing debating, when I was doing debating championships at Cambridge, when I looked around me at my friends uh, and who had actually got pupillage, a lot didn't. But I didn't really know anyone who had come from a comprehensive school who had. And when I was actually doing some debating competitions down at Cambridge, I actually was asking around and there was nobody who came from a comprehensive school there at all. There were some grammar schools, which they called state schools, um, which I didn't quite understand to begin with. But that's a mistake on my part. Um, But, um, you know, and and so there really, really is a sort of there really is a sort of problem, uh, I, I think. And I think it probably still sort of exists I mean the other thing I would just like to say is that just the term class and working class or middle class or whatever definition you want to use to me one of the things that kind of worries me a little bit is that somehow we seem to live in a, a culture where because that term is nebulous nobody defines themselves necessarily as working class people who I might have thought were working class by virtue of what what they have don't necessarily define themselves as that, which I think is a, is a good thing. But I think it sometimes I'm probably putting this really clumsily, but I think it sometimes um, prevents them. It gives them a blind side because I think I speak to kids sometimes who who think every anything is possible, and I really really think anything should be possible for them. But sometimes I'm not entirely sure they you know that it is. Um, and I, I, it feels like a bit of a confidence trick for whichever government happens to be in power um, at, at the time. And that that that's something that just, you know, that just worries me a little bit. Um, not quite seeing the reality of, of what you are and the, the, the surrounding, you know, the, the actually prevailing surroundings that you're in and your lack of opportunity that is taken for granted um, from some other people. And that's something I've noticed. But I suppose to put a cap on on everything, one thing I did realise when I was working in the prison service, particularly with young offenders, um, was that most people are exactly the same. So most people want respect. Uh, Most people deserve respect. Um, Most people um, want nice clothes to wear, albeit that they should of course be uh, responsibly resourced, and I take the point that Lil quite correctly made about uh, cheap fashion um, and what it's doing to the planet. Um, but they want respect, they want a bit of money, um, they, they want most of all an opportunity, and that cuts right across through whatever class, and, and it just seems to me that, uh, you know, just the, the problem is the perspective of where you come from, and um, that is really, I think, all I've got to say without hopefully being too boring, so um, I, I hope that's enough of, n- enough for you. Um would that
1: is that is that okay amy are you there That's, hi she just gone downstairs now but i'm oh, um, sorry mercedes, mercedes. <laughs> thank you no it was really it was great it was really interesting i really like in like what you said about um the prison service and it's really interesting story so thank you um let me just see if i can get this working it's the first time i've done this <laughs> um i think we've got veronica next um hey veronica hi
6: Hiya. Oh, yeah. I'm Aww. so sorry. I'm <laughs> late. I was like so rushing fun. and nannying. <laughs> um but okay. yeah, um thank you so much for having me. And it was nice to like be able to at least catch Joanne's um, speech because that was yeah, it was really interesting to hear a bit more about your experience. Um I feel like I've not actually come with like loads prepared. Um I guess I just kind of wanted to have a bit of a chat. I feel like that uh, sorry if I like ramble on. Um but I felt like I had a lot to say. And if I wrote it all down, I would lose track of it or it wouldn't sort of sound sound like me. So I hope that's okay. Um, but yeah, uh, my name is Veronica. I, I'm based in South London at the moment, but I'm originally from Australia. I moved here about five years ago. Um, and I've been a nanny for about nine years. Um, so on top of this, I, I recently started working as a researcher um, and mainly looking into like the lived experiences of nannies no pairs in the UK. And last year, I also founded a, a mutual aid organisation uh, led by and for migrant nannies no pairs. Um, so sorry,
3: can I please ask you to slow down because I'm hard of hearing.
6: And oh, you're slow. speaking
3: very very quickly. Can you please slow down? Also, can everyone please mute when they're not speaking because. What happens is um, Veronica's voice is getting distorted because there's more than one microphone live and uh, sometimes there's background noise but I'm really struggling to hear and I'm trying to read the captions and the so captions don't come up at the same time because you're speaking so quickly. I'm sorry to interrupt. No,
6: not at all. I, I get told that I speak too quickly a lot so thank you for pulling me up on it. Um, yeah, so the... um. The Nanny Solidarity Network uh, is a grassroots mutual aid organization, and we're really focused on building a sense of collective action amongst like migrant nannies, no pairs. Um, So we provide community events and welfare support, employment and immigration advice and emergency aid. So we do like emergency housing and hardship grants. Um, We initially started in the first lockdown in response to the huge amount of au pairs and nannies who were made homeless a lot of au pairs were sort of kicked out by families who fled to second homes and things like that Um, a lot of them were forced to come into work um, even when it was unsafe they weren't able to wear PPE didn't have any proper risk assessments we actually had quite a few people who stopped being paid um, but were still working Um, and for a lot of migrant nannies even if they're here with the right to work like me I, I don't have access to benefits so I can't I can't lose my job and a lot of people were in that position um so yeah we were specifically like looking at campaigning around that um but yeah I guess I kind of came to nannying um because uh I started I started this work when I was 15 um I'm I moved out quite young um I I didn't finish school and I I started nannying and working full-time um and I guess I kind of had quite a rough couple of years um and I didn't have a lot of contact with my parents and sort of what saved me I guess was I had a social worker assigned to me when I was 19 which is not the norm a lot of the time I guess from what I've heard from my friends you tend to get a social worker when you're a minor I didn't no one turned up then I don't know why um but it was part of my requirements to keep getting benefits and um I was really skeptical at the time. Like I'd had a lot of negative experiences with law enforcement and teachers. And uh, it felt like a lot of the adults in the room like letting me down. Um, But actually, my social worker, Jess, ended up being amazing. Um, And she helped me save enough money to move to the UK, um, which completely changed the trajectory of my life. Um, But yeah, I guess what I'm interested about when, when Amy told me about this talk was that I guess I really conceptualize class quite differently because in Australia, we don't have a really clear class structure. There's massive inequality, especially in terms of racial inequality. And where I grew up, it was really multicultural, but often um, like uh, people who were not of Australian ethnicity, like uh, people were treated really horribly. So there was, you know, Australia has its own issues, Um, but it really prides itself as a country on not having like a very visible class structure. There's this thing called like the fair go um, society they talk about. Um, and it's this idea that everyone has equal opportunities and that, that's not the case, but it meant that I kind of didn't grow up with a vocabulary around class um, and my experiences. And when I came to the UK, um, I really was able to like frame quite a lot of my upbringing, in, and sort of give a name to it, because um, it's interesting, sort of like what I saw some people writing in the comments, like in in England, like specifically, like people will sort of judge you on like what you eat and where your holidays are, and like I remember when I first got here, someone saying to me like, "Oh, it's really posh to take your kids to Centre Parks," and I was like, "Oh, like you don't you don't have that sort of same uh, those same sort of uh, parameters in Australia," but it means that a lot of the time your experiences of financial precarity or the things that often come along with um, being working class when you're growing up kind of don't you don't have a way of expressing them Um, I hope that makes sense Um, but um, yeah I guess um, what I kind of wanted to touch on with this was like how financial precarity and working class identity sort of overlap and where they they diverge um, and then sort of how we sort of understand class across geographical context how it shifts and how we sort of make sense of it um because also my my dad is from the states and he grew up working class but again it was sort of framed quite differently I think there's something particularly British about the way we frame class here um and also like the malleability of, of class um I think that what it means like it's really interesting like what it means to be upwardly or downwardly mobile I really don't like that phrase I think it denotes this idea that you're trying to escape something and I think that's really offensive but um I I I certainly feel like now moving to a capital like moving to a big city and being more financially secure and like having a very different life than my family back home um it's almost like grieving a loss of a different kind of self, like a different a different person that I was in a way. And I know that like my partner has, um, he's from Stalbridge, and whenever he goes home, his parents call him like posh boy because he has kind of got a bit of a Southern accent now. And it's this thing of like, what does it mean when you like grow up with this sense of self and this sense of self in terms of your community and your family, and then you move, and things shift and you're perceived differently and you kind of don't fit in either category um so yeah um yeah i don't know i um i also kind of i've always uh, struggled with um thinking about um class because i think that for me what really uh was really prevalent in my upbringing was um financial precarity um and uh, you know, I I lived in like, sort of fairly lower middle class areas. Um, but my parents um, kind of spent money in a way that was quite odd. I don't know if this is like useful for anyone uh, to know. Um, but my my parents are bipolar. So they would often spend money in quite a manic way, uh, which meant that sometimes we would be given like 100 pounds to go to the cinema, but then we wouldn't have food money. And so that also really skewed my understanding of our like what where our family sat and what we had and what we didn't have because there was no sort of security or stability and um they they ended up going bankrupt um but um i guess yeah it was really hard to pin down like what that experience was and it it's slightly harder to sort of encompass than maybe if i'd grown up in the uk with more of an understanding um and yeah i know i also think that um there's this kind of sense of like um i kind of came to this point through chatting with amy actually of like well i don't feel like i'm i don't feel like i fit this identity that feels really important to me anymore um i don't feel like i'm entitled to identify with this experience um but so many of my um oh family so anyway that was old oh no um it I wasn't in inherited wealth it was like we we just <laughs> I didn't know how to explain it. um we had like um my parents didn't earn a lot of money but they spent money very manically so even when we didn't have money they spent it and they would go into quite a lot of debt it was kind of um, a symptom of their of their mania that they would spend money in a certain way so when when you're eight years old you think oh, like we're buying all this new stuff, we must be okay for money. And then you kind of look back when you're older and you're like, oh, we didn't have food money or we didn't have, we didn't ever go on holidays or things like that. It was just, it was a symptom of, of sort of illness, if that makes sense.
3: Yeah it's, yeah. yeah, it's a symptom of bipolar disorder when you're in the manic state to, the, to spend money to excess. That's one of the symptoms, that's right. Yeah, no, it's just that I'm trying to follow you. And again, you're speaking a little bit too much ahead of the captions and the captions translated you as spending money that was old and i I didn't follow what you were saying subsequently didn't didn't match up to what the captions said and i got very confused
6: yeah sorry i'm trying to slow down (laughs) but i think i've been um i've rambled on quite a lot anyway but um yeah i don't know i feel like that's kind of where my head's been at thinking about this because i i still find it something that is quite nebulous for me um and something that I've talked a lot about with friends here as I kind of I feel like I'm being i I'm understanding myself more in adulthood and understanding like an Australian perspective on it a bit more as I get older but I think I guess it's important to think about those shifts and how we change over time and how we hold sort of parts of ourselves that still exist in us and parts of ourselves that no longer exist in us and like um i think the 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 more we can hear from others like in like events like this the more we can sort of situate our own experiences um because there is no like one working class experience like as as the title of this you know sort of says like um things are always going to overlap with like race and religion and ge- geography and and it's it's really hard to pin down one kind of experience um And I think that can often make people feel like a fraud or feel like they don't fit in somewhere. But actually, like, it's about just expanding the vocabulary to explain our experiences, even if they don't fit perfectly, um, and kind of making space for that grey area. Um, Yeah. Um, But anyway, I've gone on enough. But thank you very much for for listening to me. And I'm sorry if I was too fast. (laughs) Okay.
1: Hi, thank you. Um, I'm just turn the spotlight off. <laughs>
6: Hi, yeah,
1: that was really great, really interesting. Um, I really liked what you were saying about um the British kind of. Well, I think this is what you were saying, like British class system being quite like strict and quite defined in some say, ways, I guess. Um, and about like social mobility, like upwards and downwards, and how I think don't really like it or something. But um, yeah, that was really great. Um, has anyone got any questions or anything?
3: finding it difficult to understand you sorry that
1: was <laughs> me um does anyone have any questions to ask anyone
2: No. hello can i ask joe a question yeah okay joe so you've talked to us about um your training at Vidal Sassoon Um, uh big respect for that because I know that's bloody hard um when did you make the transition from working um in the prison service when did you make the decision to move from that then into law then into how did you sort of go back round to working and running your own business as a salon OK,
5: so, OK, I did I did miss some pieces out because it would be too boring, but uh, OK, so this bizarre potted history. But what happened was this. I did my training at Sassoon. I did well there. I was I did hairdressing and still do hairdressing, strangely enough. Um, I did hairdressing for about six or seven years. Um, I saw some adverts for prison service. And um, I went for it. I worked in the prison service for about so I started in 1990 and um, I carried on there and I became part of an experimental project um, with if you this sounds so awful, but the government was trying to run a boot camp for young offenders but it was running it in conjunction with the British Army and Um, It was a wonderful thing, not because prisoners were double marched everywhere, although actually, to be honest, most of the boys seemed to quite like doing things like that, but because you had a ratio of almost one staff member onto one prisoner, and that's what counts actually. Um, So, so it was a bit of an experimental model and it became an experimental model for two reasons. From that model, they started to take prisoners into the army, because before then you couldn't do it if you had a criminal record. They also recruited their first transsexual, um, I think she became, I don't know if she was recruited as an officer, and all I was told was they were keeping their eye on me to see how integration could happen. Anyhow, so I did that and I was going to go back to the service um, and I saw another, there was another opportunity and I'd been working like hard, like mad in the prison service to better my educational qualifications because I had absolutely none when I left school. And um, I used to go along and this lovely teacher used to, well she wasn't lovely, she gave me work to do but um, and I didn't like teachers to be honest, but she gave me all this work and, and there was this opportunity that said you could do an engineering degree. And you wouldn't have to have your A-levels, providing you could take an exam. So I took the exam fully expecting to fail it, but I didn't fail it. I passed it. And that meant you could train, do an engineer, full license aircraft engineering training course, which I did. I worked for Monarch Airlines, uh, Monarch Engineering, which is sister of Monarch Airlines. And it all sounds nuts. And then we had 9-11, and there was a massive downturn. And quite honestly, okay, I'm going to be very glib, Lil, but you know what I'm like, Uh, it wasn't good for my nails. (laughs) uh, It wasn't quite, you know, it was really, it was really interesting, but it it wasn't quite me. And I, I was really interested in criminal justice. I really was. Um, because of what I'd seen in prison and because
3: sorry can you please slow down because oh I'm like so sorry 9-11
5: wasn't good for your nails. yes no that's, that's right so so sense. sorry yes let me let me make sure I stay nice and slow for you I do apologize um, so what I was saying was that 9-11 happened the, the you know the tragedy that was 9-11 and that we're kind of celebrating and there was a massive downturn in aero engineering because as you can as you may remember um and i had a choice really um about it seemed like a time for me to choose what to do but the difference was this time i had a degree behind me um i had the you know well it was actually a license it's a degree now but it was the equivalent of a good degree and i realized i could use this degree And I could go to law school and do a conversion course. Now, it was very hard for me to go to law school because, as Lil actually said, I didn't have any money behind me. So in order to go to school, I had to go in the evenings. And it's a really hard bloody course doing a postgraduate diploma in law. And um, luckily for me, L'Oreal, because you're worth it, um, decided to ask if I would teach for them. And so I would go teaching for L'Oreal in the day and be studying law in the evening, which was really onerous. And then at the end of the law, um, uh, at the end of my two year postgraduate diploma, I did something called the bar vocational course, um, which qualifies you as a barrister. The funny thing was that when I was called to the bar, I was called by bloody Michael Howard. And I just say bloody Michael Howard, but I'm sorry, I know that's overtly political of me but when I was called up to the bar to receive my certificate from him he had at the t- I remember him from way back in the prison service um when he was actually a home secretary and I just remembered some of my friends and I remembered what slopping out was like and I remember some of the conditions and I remember some of the things that I saw and some things I saw were brutal um you know, if you if you if, if you cut a boy down at Christmas um, because he's tried to do away with himself, that's brutal. I also saw kindness and um, and, um, and and, and, and so, sorry. So the irony was that he called me to the bar. Now, I tried very hard to get a pupillage. And I wasn't able to do that. It's not unique. Lots of people did it. And I'm not going to say, woe is me. Uh, You know, I'm working, you know, I I don't come from the top drawer and I'm a bloody transsexual. And it's, isn't it? I'm not saying that because a lot of people don't get selected, but my grades were high. I did feel that there was some area of bias, to be honest. Um, And not just for me, for other people who I knew, uh, who were very, very smart, much smarter than me, but also didn't necessarily come from certain establishments. Um, so I had to earn money. I had a few private ladies, clients who I used to do, God bless their soul, and I still do them. And there was a little shop going um, near me, and I opened it up. It was tiny, luckily, and the recession had hit, of course. And, uh, but luckily, um, I went into profit quite quickly um and I've just moved that little shop into a much bigger shop which is much more luxurious um and so I had to in a way I had to go back to where I came from but the best thing that happened was it, when I look at look back I don't have any regrets really about anything that that, that I did and I thought I think that my experience in prison was well worth it I think everyone should have to work in a prison if you take my meaning my law training really helped me in so many ways, and um, I, I just um, and and it, it gave me exposure to so many things. So, for example, I did some work with something called LGAT, which was the Lesbian Gay Asylum Team, and I saw people who were fleeing really terrible persecution. I used to have to do witness statements for them, and I was able to represent people in in court, which was really really amazing, and. And then the thing that I did, which I'm most proud about, was which is weird, but I really was proud about. I went off whilst I was at having, whilst I had my hairdressing school. I went to drama school, and what I had always wanted to do was acting. And I was told that I was actually told that people like you don't do acting. And I went off, and um, I got you know I, I did quite well. I mean I got my certificates and things, and of course I met the lovely Lil there because of my first ever my first ever job was on, a, on something called fine and dandy um at the king's head which was directed by the amazing talented Lil warren and um so it all kind of worked out well in the end um, although you will hear me moaning constantly <laughs> oh yes i've just had a note Lamotte he just said i think i was in that Lamotte was in it very minor role <laughs> no he was absolutely brilliant um, so sorry that that's that's the convoluted story of how I got to where I am now. So amazing! I love that you've done that like, so much. So, so yeah, but you try putting it on a CV. It <laughs> makes no it makes no sense. Yeah,
1: it's so cool. I love that. I love my mum was um I did prison,
5: or she was a prison
1: um officer for a bit. So yeah, <laughs> and did that.
5: Excellent. Um,
1: yeah. She's, I've, I've, I've,
5: prison officers are really misunderstood mm. I mean you see things like cell blockage and uh, you know those sorts of portrayals and, and I saw them um but actually look there are of course bad apples everywhere but just, I think the beauty about being a, a prison officer or a screw let's call it <laughs> let's have it for what it is um mm. a screw uh, is is that actually you can deliver um human rights at the ground level and when I when I did a mini pupillage at Doughty Street Chambers which is a top human rights chambers they are brilliant they seemed very obsessed that only they some of the other girls some of the other of the other uh, candidates young quite upper class I think really barristers trainee barristers seemed to think they were the only people who could dispense human rights but I can absolutely assure you that human rights are dispensed on the coalface in a prison, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, sorry, it may bore you, but I, I feel I should say this. Um, I, I really remember we had a prisoner in one of the establishments I worked in. He had he was very violent. He had a very young mental age, and he, he had been brought up by his grandparents who died. Mm-hmm. There wasn't funding to take to take him to go to his funeral, their funeral, and he was bereft. And one of the prison officers who actually I really hated because we used to argue and he was rude to me and uh, ironically looked just like me, though, like a male version of me. I, I, I remember him coming in with his mate on his day off to escort that, that man so he could mm-hmm. go to his grandparents funeral and he wasn't getting paid for that. And I thought that was one of the kindest things. Yeah. And that is proper human. That is human rights. So it's something that we can every one of us can do and you know I just think prison officers are often given a bad rap where they don't necessarily always deserve it yeah well,
1: thank you <laughs> um that's anyone... no, fine <laughs> it's, great.
7: it's great um mm-hmm. does anyone got any questions anything question. hi Paul hi. yeah that's a really interesting of so discussions um I've got a question though because Everybody's been talking about class as identity and whether they're working class and what does class mean and about, you know, this idea that there's, you know, there's sort of fuzzy boundaries between the working class, the middle class, who's, who's, who's working class, who isn't, all these sort of debates. It's really fascinating stuff. But, you know, you could say, well, you know, the, all this emphasis on class as identity is, is strange in a way because actually, you know, a lot of uh, issues, and certainly historically, particularly in this country, but not just this country, a lot of the issues around class and working classness have been around class struggle, and they've been around issues around the politics of class, and a lot of it's been around organised labour, the role of trade unions, labour parties, communist parties, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we seem to be in this sort of, to my mind, in 2021, and I've just joined Twitter, and the, the, the amount of discussion on Twitter about, you know, class as identity, and you have a lot of, now, apparently, I'm an academic, but now, apparently, there are lots of working class academics, they never used to be. Um, so, you know, I'm just going to wonder, you know, whether, what people think about, well, okay, so there is all this discussion about classes, It's clearly, you know, energises people. There was a great British class survey done by Mike Savage a few years ago, and people were very interested in that. And, you know, whether you were, you know, what your cultural capital is, whether it, whether it makes you working class or middle class, whatever. But you could say, well, this is all a bit odd because actually the working class in terms of the organized working class has never been weaker. It's, it's incredibly weak. And that the politics of class in the politics, you know, Labour, Labour politics. I'm not just talking about the Labour Party, but obviously that's part of it, Um, is actually pretty weak. And, you know, you could argue in many ways. And again, there's this sort of issue around Brexit and, you know, the whole debate, again, there's a debate there as to why people voted Brexit, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But again, you know, it's interesting there that kind of the, one of the uh, arguments around that was that, uh, you know, some arguments anyway, is that the working, Part of the working class, the so-called left behind, uh, they voted class. Uh, sorry, they voted for Brexit not because of any kind of, you know, uh, you know, uh, progressive idea of, uh, you know, this is going to enhance progressive politics. It was simply because they were pissed off and were quote unquote left behind in this great, <laughs> you know, economic race that is uh, the UK. So I just wonder what people thought about that. You know, is is you know about this relationship between class as culture and class, working class as culture and working class as politics. Oh,
1: sorry to um, cut in. Um, Actually, the event does finish at 7.30. I was just wondering if you have a question or is it?
7: That is the question. What do people think about that? What What do people think about the idea? There's all this emphasis on class as identity. At the same time, you could argue the idea of the working class in terms of politics has never been weaker.
0: I think Paul it depends kind of politically if you're coming at this from a kind of Marxist view of what class is, um, and you know that's absolutely fine but I think that uh, I guess this kind of program and this particular event uh, you and you might subscribe to that and and you know that that's fine but I think that we were trying to maybe unpick that a little bit and um, kind of think about you know the different experiences of class that you might have so you might be a woman and working class or you know a person of color and working class and things like that and uh, i guess that's something and, and my understanding also is of you know marx didn't kind of get there but i think there's quite a lot in there that you can read that was kind of his he was kind of saying and um, there's work to be done there and someone like paul gilroy kind of talks about it from a perspective of like There's many different experiences of class, and I think with everything, things evolve, right? And so I'm not talking about.
7: I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a Marxist. I'm just talking about the, you know, the historical development Mm. of the labour movement in this country, which has been incredibly important in relationship to how working (laughs) classness has been thought about. And it seems to be then that that is very well. My, I would argue, it's incredibly weak now.
3: Uh,
5: Veronica, did you want
7: to to
6: say something? Yeah, I know we have to finish up. But I just wanted to say really yeah. briefly, I actually think that um, the labour movement in this country is really strong, it's just really divided and I think part of that is the Labour Party's insistence on this idea of one type of working class person, yeah. this white working class, mm-hmm. nor- northern community. Yeah. But actually, if you look at the precariat now, and like um, Mike Savage looks at this and we're, sort of geographically how it's shifted, we're looking at gig workers in London, we're looking at people under the age of 30. I know that a lot of the au pairs we have and nannies we have, they're finding their work on digital platforms like Bubble, Coru Kids, people are doing Uber driving. And I think part of Labour's failure now, and I don't want to get too much into this because it makes me too angry, is that there's a sense of we have to win back, you know, we have to win back these, the red wall, but actually you're not (coughs) looking at the new working class, the working class that is in front of you. Because for me now, I think the precariat and, and the site of labour struggle is really governed by who owns homes and who doesn't. And actually a lot of traditionally working class people, it... In the in the Midlands and in, and in in that sort of red wall, um, they actually they they were able to buy their homes at a less volatile time, and that really does that does change sort of where their police where they lie on the political spectrum. I think we need to be looking to like um like non white communities in London, people who are 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 young, are working through gig apps, people who are interning. I think it's just the the parameters have really. I-
5: Yeah, yeah, I sorry. Can I say something just in relation to that? But I'm I'm afraid I don't think I'm going to be able to answer your your question. But I I mean, what just strikes me is that for me, uh, when you talk about class, it's obviously now extremely, um, an extremely diverse thing, actually, as we've even heard, heard tonight. Um, but for me, when I talk to people, there are other things in terms of it's in terms of how you identify yourself culturally. Um, there seems to be divides relating to youth. But for me, the big divide is whether you have access to opportunity. And actually, oddly enough, that can not neatly fit down the old divide lines um, that that they used to be. Um, I know that doesn't answer what, you you know, the the, the position that she put. Um, But but I think that can happen in different parts of the country to different people. It also worries me, um, I think, that... Sometimes we can share experiences and perhaps how we used to define uh, define class um, as a working class problem. So when it requires dealing with politically, um, maybe we can't do that quite so easily because some of the people who may be sharing those very problems, those very difficulties, that lack of enfranchisement with with services or whatever it happens to be, um, uh, actually don't necessarily see themselves as as fixed as sitting in that group even though actually if you look at their social context they they may be and i think that's where it becomes much less clear as to define you know who is a class in terms of a cultural phenomena and i mean all i can say is from just from the point of view of employment and the weakening of employment you are right i think you're right i know for a fact that in terms of employment law over the last few years there has been uh, a number of uh, enactments um by the by the same government, but but, but the previous uh, uh, incarnation of it that has actually withdrawn certain rights um, and laws that protected workers. That is absolutely, definitely true. Um, Maybe, I hope, I live in hope, but I am quite cynical. Um, Maybe, um, you know, at the moment we are facing chronic shortages. I'm not going to get into the politics of Brexit or anything like that, I just can't. But, you know, um, my hope would be that for the first time maybe workers will be in in greater demand and maybe they will be able to push for something better but then I'm sure prices will rise and so on and so forth um but but it does seem to me and I I, I'm not political particularly in any way but it does seem to me that it's there aren't many parties out there that actually speak to most of the people I, I I I speak to and that I know and that you know, I, I relate to. And um, I think that is also a, a big part of the problem. And I'm sorry, it's a compli- it's not an answer to your question. I did preface it by saying it wouldn't be. Um, but but it's, it's just something I wanted to add into the mix.
1: Thank you. Um, we actually have to wrap it up now because so we've got another event on in 20 minutes. But... <laughs> but thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate it. It was really
0: great discussion, really interesting. Thank you so much. And we're going to be in touch um, to um, ask you what th- it feels most appropriate to do with it, whether put it on the YouTube channel or, you know, the audio. Um, but yeah, thanks for, um, thanks for coming and taking part. And if you're local, we're having a party here at Newington Green Meeting House. <laughs> between eight and 11, and we've got an amazing exhibition that Mercedes helped put together. We've got a bar and we've got some live music from Common Sound, but thanks again, everyone. Thank you.